Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Roberto Ramon Lint Sagarena, author of Aslan and Arcadia, Religion, Ethnicity, and the Creation of Place, published by New York University Press in 2014. Dr. Lint Sagarena is an associate professor of American Studies at Middlebury College, where he teaches courses on American literature and culture, Latino studies, and religion in the borderlands. Professor Lint Sagarena is the director of the Center for the Comparative Study of Race and Ethnicity, and his research and teaching interests focus on the role of religion and religious rhetoric in the formation of racial, ethnic, and regional identities in the Americas, and with a particular attention paid to social relations resulting from inequality. Hello, Roberto, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you bringing on and, and taking on the time uh, for us today. So. I was wondering if you could begin our conversation today by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, well, I'm currently living in Vermont, but I'm a native Californian. Uh, I grew up on the central coast of California, and uh, my mother was Mexican, and my father was a Midwesterner from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up going back and forth uh, between Mexico and the U.S., and uh, I, what else can I tell you these uh I was uh, uh, a very poor student. Uh, I dropped out of high school after 10th grade and uh, was rescued by uh, a very lengthy career in uh, community college uh, Mm -hmm. in California. And from there, I went to uh, University of California at Santa Cruz. And then in a moment of complete culture shock, I ended up doing my uh, graduate work at Princeton, which is about (laughs) as different from Santa Cruz as you could possibly get. Uh, And it was there that I really launched into... um, uh, some of the interest that led to this book. Gotcha. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think I found a neat little bio on you uh, online. I think it was produced by the college uh, that you're mm-hmm. at. Um, could you talk to us a little bit more about that kind of your, that transformation you experienced in community college uh, where you kind of really got things together and were inspired? And then, I mean, that's a big jump, right, from dropping it out of high school jump, yeah. to no, community no, college going on. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, this is, uh, this sounds, uh, I don't know how it sounds actually, but <laughs> what, what what my experience really taught me was that all it takes is one individual to really make a difference in uh, a student's life. Right. Um, my high school counselors all told me you'll never go to a four-year school, uh, especially if you take the GED out. You know, um, you're basically doomed. Uh, and um, I didn't take community college that seriously at first because I never thought I would go to a four-year school, but I was. Uh, curious and, and wanted to keep my brain going. And so I did poorly in the classes there for, at first, too, until I met an advisor uh, who basically explained to me what I needed to do to get into the UC system. And once the path was laid out for me and uh, I saw what I needed to do, uh, the transformation was almost overnight. It was, I, I, uh-huh. just, uh, I hit the books hard and I, I saw what, uh, what could be done. And fortunately, at that point, I'd been working long enough that I saw uh, school is uh, a form of work and a very easy form of work compared to kitchen work, <laughs> which I've been doing. Uh, and so, so that that was where the the real moment of transformation came, and um, and and sort of hit the ground running and, and never looked back. And uh, I've been really grateful for the moments when individuals have have helped me. Um, and I hope that in my career uh, there have been moments where I've helped others. Great, great. Thank you for discussing that. I just, uh, it resonates with me. I, I got my start, uh, at least in higher education and community college as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, had a, you know, just, um, I just didn't apply myself in high school so much to where, you know, community college did become finally when I got my act together, right? That redemptive yeah. kind of moment where I could exactly. finally, you know, a salvage, if you will, right? My, my academic pursuits. And, yep. and I agree. It was, I had a couple advisors there or, you know, professors. And I think that's one of the great things about community college. A, a student has the opportunity to really 
work with professors one on one. Of course, they have to be mm-hmm. you know very proactive in doing that. But yeah. Uh, yeah. but you know you don't have some of the the other uh, what is it just the size perhaps necessarily of of a major college or research institution and then TAs and all that that kind of get in that way. It's directly professor yeah. to student, right? Right. And um, and it was there that that one of my uh, professors put it in my head that said, hey, you know, you could you could pursue a PhD. And yeah, I thought it was yeah. crazy. And I thought, that, yeah. are, you, are you seriously? That's uh, I didn't even think about that. You know, so. Uh, I appreciate that again, and, and um, you know, there's a shout out to all those great community college professors out there Absolutely. that are, yeah, that are no, doing they, some they, good. They really are the front lines and, and yeah. make a huge difference in in, uh, in social gatekeeping, you know, and, and mm-hmm. making uh, opportunities available uh, to folks. Um, yeah, and of course there are a lot of those at at uh, you know standard four year institutions. So I don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Right yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think though there's there's uh, we were lucky. Uh, I'm speaking for you now <laughs> as well as myself, but I think it's it's uh, there's a certain luxury to um, having been an adult for a while before you go to college. And I agree. Spend your time trying right, to no. figure out what it means to be an adult, and you can just um, really engage the materials. I I agree too. I, Great. Well, also, could you say a couple things? I noticed that your your academic background, um, at least your degrees, that is, are in art history, mm-hmm. philosophy, and religion. So it's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a nice eclectic mix. Can you talk a little bit about that and what spurred those you know interests? Uh, and sure, and absolutely. Degrees? Yeah. Um, well, uh, my interest uh, in uh, religion uh, came from the cultural experience of growing up in California and uh, in northern Mexico with a particularly pious mother, mm-hmm. uh, Mexican Catholic, and trying to understand the difference between the cultures of the United States, the Catholic cultures of the United States and those of Mexico. This is where I started, not where I ended up necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a curiosity about that that um, led me to uh, pursue religious studies. And I transferred to Santa Cruz uh, into their religious studies program, but the year that I arrived, they just closed it. So, oh no! No, that, that would have yeah, that would have been a bummer. Except that it allowed me to double major in art history and philosophy, and basically do the same thing with the same faculty, just not within the rubric of uh, religious studies. Gotcha. And uh, I was able to stay at Santa Cruz a little bit longer and take more classes, so that was good. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then from there, uh, um, uh, my, I was fortunate enough to get into the religion program at Princeton, and the reason I. I uh, wanted to go there was uh, my uh, principal advisors um, were both people that I really um, admired in terms of their way that they were able to write about complicated issues around uh, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, identity, um, that would be uh, Al Rabito and, and David Carrasco. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, that, that was, I felt uh, sort of uh, blessed to have uh, that door open and uh and once I got to the East Coast, I'd never been east of Texas before I got there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty provincial Westerner. Um, I really, it really gave me the opportunity to think about home gotcha. uh, and how home was constructed uh, uh, when I was looking at the East Coast through um, the eyes of a foreigner. I totally agree with that. I mean, just that concept of leaving home. Can really make you think about you know just uh, you know the place that you come from and mm-hmm. you know how people you know the, the environment that you grew up in. I mean, I remember it wasn't. I grew up in Southern California as well, and it wasn't until I mm-hmm. I left uh, Southern California for a few years, uh, and it wasn't very far. I was just in mm-hmm. the you know Mountain West, and um, mm-hmm. but in a much less uh, you know it wasn't a you know very diverse metro- metropolitan region like either San Diego or or Los Angeles in particular and right. uh, it was just shocking to see how people responded to me you know just yeah. uh, the way i looked and just the name of the what my name was and the assumptions that that carried and it really got me thinking you know as you just pointed out about where i came from and and what what goes into all of that the idea the role of identity and making place and and whatnot you know mm-hmm. Yeah. So certainly, and and it sees that that experience certainly carried over into the book. You know, uh, your interest with religion and place making. So, can you talk us to us a little bit about um, how you came to write Atlan and Arcadia? Um. Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, this is uh, this is dark secrets revealed here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, uh, I, this was even before grad. Visit school. Uh, this was 187 had passed, and uh-huh. I left California, and I just felt like this place is really a hateful, horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 
Uh, I wrote the book, uh, at least my initial impulse was sort of the opposite of a love letter to California. It was right. more like, how did this place end up being such a horrible place? And then once you start <laughs> thinking about it and realizing, well, uh, the, 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 the California you know uh, is one that was built on war and conquest. And right. it's something that, is, that we bury deep uh, and we don't talk about much. Um, and also, uh, you know, having grown up in the uh, late 60s, early 70s with a father who was heavily involved with Mecha, um, mm. I had uh, a sense of, of, of uh, uh, counter-critiques, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the dominant way of thinking about the Southwest, and, and Southern California in particular. Um, so it really was uh, uh, emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my emotional response to the place. And uh, it was a, a learning experience um, about uh, uh, um, not only California, but my understanding my own identity, uh, having grown up in both Mexico and California, and uh, uh, how the two places relate, uh, and trying to make myself whole, I guess, is really uh, part of the project. I mean, and that sounds all very... Um, uh, like a, a psychoanalytic project. But there is a certain... Uh, a certain bit of healing that can come from uh, uh, trying to gain a sense of where one came from and right. uh, in deep in deep ways and deep critical ways too. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to um, you know this type of a disjuncture that that I guess we tend to experience at some point of our lives where you know you're 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 fronted with a, you know an experience like what came out of 187 um, mm-hmm. and uh, what you'd experienced previously or what you know mm-hmm. and that goes from what you'd been taught you know from school mm-hmm. what you'd seen and learned mm-hmm. in the home uh, mm-hmm. you know that's something that that definitely shook me when I entered college you know I, I hadn't mm-hmm. gained much of a sense of as you just mentioned the deep connections in history between uh, you know California and the broader Southwest and Mexico right and mm-hmm. um, even now I think that's something that still uh, even as I look at my my daughter's history textbooks of course mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. police mm-hmm. them like crazy <laughs> Uh, and uh, I know I shouldn't do that, but uh, you know it's, they've gotten better. You know the school curriculum's gotten better. I think, in particularly in California history, and, and talking about certain things. But that that sense that you just mentioned of the connection between the two places, you know, and mm-hmm. how deep and long and historical and conflicted it is, I think is something that de- definitely needs to be um, teased out a bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, particularly I think in in, in you know K through twelve education in, in various ways. So yeah, and this book really gets at that. So. Uh, thank you. That was uh, uh, that, that, that's very generous of you. Uh, that's, that's, that was part of the hope, and part of the hope was also to look at this from the Mexican side too, mm-hmm. because um, just as the United States denies um, its Latin American past in terms of wars of conquest, and you know, I mean, obviously intervention for for uh, uh, you know uh, almost two centuries now. Um, but uh, uh, there's a Mexican denial, of, mm-hmm. uh, or there has been a Mexican denial. Of, it's, I think this has diminished somewhat over time, but a uh, real critique of Mexico de Fuera, and uh, at least initially of, of uh, uh, Pachucos and then Chicanos, right. right, as being uh, traitors, right, right. and being uh, um, uh, people without a culture. Uh, right. So the critique comes from all sorts of different sides, and uh, trying to make sense of it um, uh, and show uh, folks on both sides of the fence that hey, wait a minute, you know you're you're uh, you're intertwined here. <laughs> right. don't, don't don't think that you're uh, that you're completely separate because you're not. Right, and so with the book, you then you know you, you mentioned your your deep interest in in religion, and that becomes mm-hmm. pretty much your your central focus, you know, on the role of religion and. Um, you know, it, how it's intertwined with placemaking and, and mythology and, you know, creating histories and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that the, the place that religion um, uh, is uh, central in this book is in showing the way that the religious rhetoric uh, and uh, uh, the language of tradition uh, helps to inculcate uh, particular ways of... Um, whitewashing history, of forgetting particular types of history, mm-hmm. uh, and also of creating counter-narratives um, uh, with the end of the book. But um, uh, y- y- religion becomes uh, um, something that uh, uh, legitimizes um, in a way that uh, few things can. And so um, 
the book uh, doesn't really have a theological focus, uh, but it, it really does. Um, what I tried to do anyway was, was really look at the way that actors um, made use of religion um, rather than looking at religion and religious practice per se, although arguably uh, appropriating history could be thought of as a religious practice. Gotcha, um, right. Yeah. Well, and the title speaks to that. I think um, you know a little subdued, but but definitely clearly to me. You know, in these in putting the concept of Atlan and Arcadia right up the front there, um, mm-hmm. you know how you know both of these are these kind of you know have this these mythological ideas and notions that form what they are, mm-hmm. right? And and mm-hmm. their importance mm-hmm. and and the chapters of the book lay this out and carried throughout history. So let's let's get into a discussion of these these chapters. Sure. Um, the first one you begin by uh, describing the interrelated interrelated narratives of conquest and reconquest employed in mm-hmm. the push uh, for both Mexican independence from Spain and then later in America's westward expansion, the, that mm-hmm. is the United States, of course, you know, westward mm-hmm. expansion into northern Mexico. Uh, so mm-hmm. those involved in these nationalist projects were myriad, right? We had clerics, there's historians, mm-hmm. soldiers, writers, settlers themselves. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. recognized, you point out, and I loved this quote, uh, that, quote, owning place requires owning history, unquote. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so will you discuss the use of, you've mentioned religious rhetoric, so let's discuss the, the use of religious rhetoric and iconography by both the early 19th century uh, Criollo re- revolutionaries in Mexico and mm-hmm. then also uh, the mid-19th century American expansionists and how they laid mm-hmm. claim to California and sought to refashion the region's history to coincide with their vision of, the, of its future. Sure, yeah. Well, um, on the Mexican side, I guess uh, it would be easy to start with uh, uh, Manuel Hidalgo, right, and the Grito de Dolores, and mm-hmm. the, the banner of Guadalupe, and the the, the independence moving, movement starting under uh, the image of Guadalupe, and how that becomes canonized and uh, uh, turned into a particular nationalist narrative in Mexico, uh, where you end up with um, uh, Guadalupe um, uh, sort of squaring off with um, other. Um, uh, versions of Mary, you know, La, La Conquistadora. The, mm-hmm. So the Spaniards were having La Conquistadora. <laughs> uh, the Mexicans were, uh, had Guadalupe. And uh, so religion is used, uh, even though you're talking about essentially the same um, uh, saint or intercessor um, on opposite sides of, of a national frame. But because Guadalupe was an American apparition, by American, I mean that broadly, uh, of, the, of the Americas. Right. Uh, she became uh, a great um, vehicle uh, for uh, claiming religious connection uh, to place. She appeared to uh, an indigenous man in the Americas and criollos, that is to say the descendants of um, Spaniards uh, in the Americas, um, were able to lay claim to that, though they uh, may or may not have had uh, uh, indigenous uh, blood in them. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. Blood, blood doesn't necessarily tie one to claims of place at this point. It's about the narrative of right. uh, Americanness, and again, Americanness broadly, not uh, in terms of the United States. Um, and so this is very anti-Spanish, uh, anti-Gachupin. Que viva el buen gobierno y muerte a los Gachupines. You know, long live uh, government and death to the Spaniards. comes <laughs> uh, a battle cry for Mexicans. Um, and... Uh, making the country Aztec and talking about resurrecting the Aztec empire, uh, even by uh, the children of Spaniards, uh, uh, becomes a national project, um, right. which is just as imaginative um, as that of uh, American Protestants who are coming and seeing themselves as being as industrious and as pious as the uh, Spanish Franciscan priests. And th- there's a crucial distinction there. Um, all of this is starting up right after the Mexican War, which is a moment of great nativism and mm-hmm. anti-Catholicism in the right, state. Right. But by really focusing on the Franciscan identity of these priests as opposed to their Catholic identity, right. um, they were able to do some some uh, political uh, acrobatics and uh, and embrace the Catholic past and, and ultimately Americanize it over the course of uh, the next you know fifty sixty years. And uh, and lay claim uh, to the place by uh, sharing the uh, the industriousness and the uh, the uh, presumed moral superiority um, and racial superiority 
of uh, Anglo whites, um, and, and as I say in the book, and, and, and others have said, it's, it's this idea of walking in the footsteps of the of the fathers of the fathers, right, right. Um, that uh, that ultimately become the, the the underpinning for American claims to um, to the Southwest, and also the creation of the Southwest. That's something that uh, was um, uh, crucially important to me, and it may be an obvious point, but uh, those of us who grew up in Southern California uh, are used to buildings that look like uh, Taco Bells. You know? right. and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so really getting at, at, at the, the idea that, wait a minute, it wasn't always like this. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. this was something that was constructed in order to create a region within the United States, just mm-hmm. as the South creates its emblems and just as New England has its uh, own particular um, architectural vocabulary, um, the Southwest needed something to make it an identifiable American, and by American in this time, at this term, I mean yeah, a part of the United States, uh, region. Um, right. So, well, yes, uh, and I, yeah. what I appreciate is how you, you bring up the, um, you know, the, mention, the, the, the aspect of anti-Catholicism that uh, was, was really quite widespread, you know, throughout the early 19th uh, to the middle of the you know, early to mid-19th century. And a lot of that gets lost in our, uh, you know, in the history of, of race. And, you know, we talk about uh, the sectional divide and, uh, and particularly the War of Mexico. And a lot of that is, you know, a lot of, you know, racial analysis is, is used in that and well-deserved. Uh, I just appreciate and I think it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting and, and point of you to point out that this is also a time of, of that a very strong anti-Catholicism. And yet... These Anglo Protestants are able to envision this Christian kinship, right, with uh, Franciscan missionaries that allowed them to, um, you know, gain a sense of mission and moral, right, moral authority, if you will, uh, um, to the colonization, or well, actually, this wouldn't be to westward expansion, uh, right? And uh, part of this was envisioning the colonization, the, the early colonization of California by Spain as something that was strictly religious, right? That's something that they, right. that these, uh, that Westward Expansion is kind of tied in, tied into and also, you know, uh, American clerics and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's something that I, I hope the book made a contribution with is a real focus on how, uh, how strongly uh, religious rationales um, were employed in, in claiming place. And by that, I mean uh, that, that, that Americans... Saw the Franciscan uh, uh, colonization of um, California as being completely religious, and denying uh, the secular aspect of it. Uh, the fact that this was, um, you know, uh, creating a, a frontier uh, for northern Mexico to defend northern Mexico, uh, and by ignoring or downplaying or criticizing um, the secular uh, component of of settlement uh, in California by um, Spanish citizens and then Mexican citizens, um, uh, or should I say, Spanish subjects and Mexican citizens. Um, the uh, uh, there was less of a uh, of a um, how can I say of a of a a break. Uh, uh, there could be a, a claim of, of religious continuity, even mm-hmm. if was, uh, political discontinuity. Right. No, no, and that's a powerful co- connection, um, and it's it's. I think it speaks to the. Um, uh, no, what is it? Uh, the, the mental acrobatics that <laughs> one yeah. that people that one needs to perform if you're um, supposedly uh, you know in this uh, what is this, this this emerging nation of this democratic nation which the United States you know has a deep history and and, and um, you know that, that it promotes right from its past that you know we were mm-hmm. it was a democratic republic and this is a, the early part of that very national mm-hmm. growth and mm-hmm. and so with all the you know the, the the notions of democracy that underlay um, you know the, the formation of the United States government and its its uh, spread. You know this again is a type of acrobatics that had to be made right in order mm-hmm. to uh, justify such a, a sweeping move uh, and, and an mm-hmm. aggressive uh, really push into Mexico for for mm-hmm. no other reason rather than a, a real seizure of, of territory. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 uh, expanding the continent for uh, for trade and opening trade to the Pacific and exactly. all, the, all the other benefits of of, of empire. You know? Exactly, exactly. And that those were critical aspects of, of both of these um, expansionist and you know projects. Both with Spain, it was it was a key part of it. Uh, mm-hmm, of course, its mm-hmm. colonization worked a, a little bit differently, but there was that very strong, um, mm-hmm. both um, economic and, and militaristic you know, security aspects of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and that definitely comes across very well in in this chapter. 
Yeah, but one of the things that, that I found intriguing was that uh, many of the American historians who celebrated the Spanish past and the Spanish uh, settlement and conquest of uh, the northern frontier uh, was incredibly well received in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really uh, uh, was embraced by um, um, Spaniards as uh, evidence of, of <laughs> the greatness of Spanish history, a sort of a longing for a lost empire, right? right. That, shows, that shows that, 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 the, that the Spaniards were, in fact, uh, uh, on this moral uh, mission to civilize, uh, as it's their whitewashing uh, of mission history, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but, but nonetheless, uh, uh, there's a strange... Uh, connection that happens with the reception in Spain. Uh, and all of this also has something to do with um, um, constructions of whiteness, I think, too, mm-hmm. I mean, both for the Spaniards, but, but also for uh, Anglo-Protestants as they construct the Southwest. One of the things uh, that, that struck me about moving to the East Coast um, and looking at home is that on the East Coast, I saw so many more hyphenated identities among whites, Irish, mm-hmm. American. You know, uh, Polish American. So, so ethnic identity and whiteness uh, played out in a different way than what I saw in right. California, where whiteness was just sort of whiteness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly, certainly there there will be pockets of, of, of uh, people identifying with a particular um, national uh, uh, background right. um, who identifies white. But westward expansion seemed to allow immigrants uh, coming into New York or, or uh, other. Uh, um, entry points to the United States from Europe, a chance to just become plain white. Exactly. Plain, right. Uh, uh, you know, and and, and, and uh, it allowed for some upward social mobility uh, in that sense. All right, um, right. Mm-hmm. They entered into a place with a little bit of a clearer canvas in terms of, of uh, European identity. Right, and there's a there's a deep history behind that. I think a lot of there's been a lot of great work done on that. Right, from um, mm-hmm. Irish migrants to San Francisco uh, leading yep. anti Chinese campaigns. Right to yep. Yep. you know the Midwesterners and New Englanders that moved to you know slipped into um, Southern California mm-hmm. uh, with the you know growth of Los Angeles and whatnot. And, and that's what this book a lot of touch on is this recreation of, of place. And mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. I, I, that's a great point. And I, I think so. American. Uh, Right, westward expansion definitely you know plays a critical role in that broadening of the concept of, of whiteness, you know, from the the very confined, uh, you know, Anglo uh, British uh, kind of conception to a much broader um, uh, con- concept over time. So, yes, uh, I want to move into the the first couple of chapters cover mostly the from the, the mid eighteenth uh, I'm sorry nineteenth century to the, the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, and I wanted to, to jump just to, due to time constraints uh, into sure. the initial decades of the of the twentieth century. because uh, mm-hmm. this is where you know Southern California at least really you know starts to enter into this uh, modern industrial era, as does Mexico. Uh, they both mm-hmm. there's some similarities and some differences. So uh, mm-hmm. you know both as a result of both the gold rush and the US war with Mexico Migrants and finance capital flooded, you know, this what was formerly northern Mexico and now, uh, you know, California and the American Southwest. So in this process, the region experienced uh, a real blistering pace of industrialization, urbanization and social and political transformation. In Mexico, this seemed to come to a head with the, you know, where it basically the outbreak of, of civil warfare. Uh, right. So all these tensions kind of really just. Uh, could no longer be constrained in, in certain ways, mm-hmm. uh, and then, however, in California particularly, um, there was a and so you had civil war. Sorry, I'll backtrack. Civil war in in um, Mexico, but then also a reconstructionist effort. And mm-hmm. you know, the United States had had gone through its civil war, uh, and that's mm-hmm. what uh, you know the whole industrial industrialization of the West was really mm-hmm. part of this uh, reconstruction. Uh, mm-hmm. Typically, we hear it from a north-south range, but from the west, right, it was a matter of right, how do we incorporate right. these western territories. And so there's right. a reconstruction all of its own going on in California and mm-hmm. uh, towards the mid to late 19th century. And so mm-hmm. the third chapter of the book brings us to really the beginning of the 20th century, right, where mm-hmm. – um, uh, you know, we start to have this really, re- we're getting massive migration uh, that it is, and I'm talking about not just Mexican migration, that's a traditional mm-hmm. sense that we, people hear the word nowadays, but I'm talking about white migration right from um, the Midwest and from New England mm-hmm. to the Southern California region. So we mm-hmm. discussed how the Spanish heritage of greater Mexico uh, was either embraced or shunned by California mm-hmm. boosters or post-revolutionary Mexican nationalists. 
during mm-hmm. like these years, 1920, 1910s, 20s and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that a little bit more? How, how was the different ways, right? So it kind oh. of turned two different ways in these regions yeah. as to the... Yeah, the, no, no, the, I, yeah, absolutely. To, I think that, that uh, uh, on the American side, uh, things became more and more codified uh, um, and, and really became, um, uh, I mean... You start to see the creation of a particular sort of cultural hegemony that that, that uh, is inculcated, you know, from uh, fourth grade curricula on, mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of understanding the past and, and and the ways that we've talked about that that really go back um, to the nineteenth so century. Um, and uh, but on the Mexican side, you have this uh, this moment of um, a, a, another golden era for indigenismo following the Porfiriato. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you have uh, the emblems of that indigenismo brought into the United States, um, and uh, 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 there becomes a there was a great show um, uh, in uh, the the Latino Museum in L.A. Uh, in the '90s, and it was called Patria uh, Portat, and it was a, it was an exhibit of calendars, chromo calendars that portrayed. Um, uh, uh, Aztec warriors holding Aztec princesses next to uh-huh. the, uh, you know, in, in, in the Valley of Mexico and all these kinds of things that we, you know, understand as being almost a sort of Mexican kitsch now. Uh, and how those became the emblems of nationalism that were brought into, um, this region that, uh, had been painted with the Spanish brush, or repainted, I should say, uh, with the Spanish brush by, uh, by Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, that was that was a, a, a moment that you know, in, in terms of the way that we think about Mexican uh, history or Mexican American history, pardon me, uh, precedes uh, a moment that we often talk about as, as being assimilationist and uh, mm-hmm. the rise of Lulac and in the fifties and, and the turn away from from Mexicanness. But as many um, scholars have shown now, that, that didn't really go away. And then right. in the sixties, we see a real explosion of it with. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, new waves of immigration um, uh, and, and uh, uh, just a, a complete transformation of the region um, that, uh, again, correlates to events in Mexico City with uh, um, the, the Olympics uh, of 68 um, and uh, the discovery of uh, the Coyoshoki stone and, and uh, a new form of, of rebellious nationalism uh, that embraced uh, the indigenous past and tried to reclaim it from uh, um, the the, uh, the dominant uh, uh, state. That mm-hmm. the, the, yeah, the the, um, the way that 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 the state tried to use that past in one way was was sort of turned against them, uh, and then that was brought to the United States and uh, became uh, central to the Chicano Chicano movement of the right right sixties and early seventies. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I found interesting in in. Um in this chapter, I want, I want to, I'm going to go back to um, uh, California's Hispanophilia in, in a little bit, but right now I just want to talk a little bit about the you know the rise of of the the muralists and the mural is is this uh, mm-hmm. type of reform. I think you 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 you, you presented as reform through like art through public art mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. emerged in this post revolutionary uh, Mexican period. Um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, more about you know the, the muralists themselves and how mm-hmm. you know their their art form. Fit into that project of reimagining uh, mm-hmm. Mexico. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, starting with uh, Los Tres Grandes de Mexico, este, uh, um, the the three great muralists, mm-hmm. uh, um, and their work abroad in the United States as they um, lived in exile, it started a tradition of uh, ethnic Mexican art, public art. Uh, in the United States. Uh, but one thing that I didn't flesh out as fully as I would have liked in this book was the influence of African-American um, uh, mural, murals and muralists um, on uh, Mexican uh, or Chicano, Chicana muralists uh, mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s um, because there are deep connections there. Um, and uh, and you see uh, an explosion of works um, and really beginning in the late 60s and, and really taking off in the early 70s, uh, you know, uh, people that are, uh, you know, household names now, like Judy Baca, you know, uh, oh, yeah. are, mm-hmm. are, are painting the streets. And um, I guess the point that I was really trying to make with a focus on muralism was that uh, 
the mission revival architecture that I claimed was how uh, Anglo-Americans were able to um, claim space uh, right. and, and, and tell a history by claiming this and in the way that that space is claimed through the architecture. Uh, the murals uh, provide the opportunity to tell a, a completely different story, a counter mm-hmm. story, a story that, that uh, um, allows for uh, and argues for the, and visually the, the legitimate presence of uh, ethnic Mexicans. Uh, right. Now, you know, right. obviously people from all over Latin America, you know, that's certainly uh, uh, murals uh, with a focus on uh, Central American uh, themes and uh, uh, peoples now right. As, right. as demographics shift in, in, in the region. And these murals, I mean, they were a, this was initially these, these three great um, muralists, as you, you say, they were embraced by the Mexican state, right? They were actually mm-hmm. funded mm-hmm. by them through like a public mm-hmm. education initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, I, I might have missed this in the book. Where did, where did that exactly come from? Where did that idea come from? Uh, muralism yeah. uh, itself uh-huh. did, in, in Mexico, did there, was there some other experience that either got Vasconcelos uh, to, to see that this would be an appropriate uh, in a form of public outreach or education during this time, or, mm-hmm. or yeah, yeah, no, uh, as you say, uh, uh, Jose Vasconcelos, uh, as uh, Secretary of Education for a few years, saw uh, murals as being a, a, a very powerful, and rightly so, a very uh, powerful form of pedagogy, uh, especially when you're dealing with a population uh, that's largely illiterate mm-hmm. and you're trying to. Um, 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 school in a particular narrative of a history and a celebration of the indigenous past uh, right. in the way that, that the, the, uh, the post-revolutionary uh, state did in Mexico. Um, but uh, uh, one of the characters that is, he's sort of a very, uh, he, he, he slips in and out of the narrative, but uh, he's uh, uh, an odd character, but, but important in this, in this moment, I think, is uh, Dr. Apple, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, a Mexican uh, Painter uh, uh, who was very accomplished, um, but he learned a lot of his craft um, uh, by studying among fascists in Europe mm. and seeing um, how muralism was employed uh, and, and, and rising um, fascist movements, uh, especially in Italy. Oh wow! And so he brought that back to Mexico. So uh, the, the the beauty of this is that nobody's hands are ever clean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, so the, the murals uh, that um, uh, now we think of as being uh, countercultural uh, in the United States, we can trace back to um, of an aesthetic uh, that we would not want to associate them with, maybe, <laughs> gotcha, uh, in right. terms of Italian fascism, right? Uh, um, so, so they have a long history and uh, of people understanding the, the power, uh, and there's a, also a long history of it as. Uh, um, ethnic and uh, um, and uh, art used for racial uplift uh, right. in the United States as well. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. I want to um, get back to because that's the that's the counter side to California's Hispanophilia, right? That mm-hmm. that really just you know reaches a, a a kind of pinnacle in this 1910 20s era, you know, of Los mm-hmm. Angeles. Los Angeles is is uh, in 1920 hits about a million people, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. becoming very urbanized. It's it's rising as a as a metropolitan uh, city of you know in its its own right, or at least it's trying to envision itself that way, and it's it's really trying to modernize itself, creating new buildings and all this stuff. And so, really interesting, you know, along this push for you know um, you know city modernization with the building of uh, you know industry infrastructure and whatnot, and and mm-hmm. the new city hall and all those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is you have this kind of, you know, just very romantic, you know, quixotic look to the past, um, mm-hmm. into the, the Spanish and mission, first the mission past first, um, mm-hmm. that, that emerges in California. And you really make this, this great point of how this, um, the, the Spanish, the Spanish fantasy past that emerges among Anglo Protestants that, that are, you know, migrants themselves or transplants to LA, um, that it forms this type of, um, Southern California, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this word, right? Uh, ecumenism, is that right? Ecumenism, but yeah. Ecumenism? You were close, you're good enough. Sorry. I've <laughs> yeah, read that you. word like a thousand times and I've you know, no never worries. heard it pronounced. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So can you talk about so, that? So trans- how- yeah, sure. Yeah, I know. It, 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 this, is, uh, this gets back to that earlier point of um, uh, Anglo-Protestants 
being able to overcome their uh, prejudice of particular Catholics, right. um, uh, Spanish Catholics in particular, uh, Mexican Catholics still, you know, not not so much. Right. But uh, yeah, and in no, fact, so uh, the religiosity of Mexican Catholics is often critiqued. It's not as not being as pious or as uh, uh, true and pure as uh, that of the Franciscans, who are mm-hmm. really Protestantized. Um, and the way that they're presented, uh, you know, and, and, and equated, I mean, literally equated uh, with the Puritans uh, as being West Coast Puritans. Right, um, right. Uh-huh. Um, but, but, and here again, this has to do with the, the creation of region. These are, uh, the Puritans are these dour, unhappy people on the East Coast. But the Franciscans knew how to live, and they, but they were still industrious and pious. So that uh-huh. goes with the creation of... Southern California and the Southwest as being a place of leisure and of affluence and uh, of not being um, sort mm-hmm. of stayed like New England, uh, and that, so so um, I, uh, claiming the Catholic past um, really is is central to um, the creation of a particular vision that's saleable. Right, and this and this being done by Anglo Protestants, right? Anglo Protestants, um, yeah, no, it's it's really wild when you read a lot of the um, uh, the uh, pamphlets from um, some of the centennial celebrations of some of the missions. Most of the people talking are Protestants, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the the Catholic priests uh, of the time think this is fabulous. They see this as being <laughs> uh, real acceptance. As so we've arrived, right. you know, Americans are no longer. Seeing us as foreigners, uh, getting an influx of money it. to rebuild churches, right? I mean, Absolutely, so, yeah, uh-huh. right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, for um, Catholics that identify as, as, or would be identified as white, or would self-identify as white, uh, this is, is a great thing. But, um, but for others, uh, the ecumenism doesn't. Um, uh, not only does it not transcend racism. It in, in fact, you know, um, reinforces this, uh, right. this idea of Mexicans as being counter to the uh, industriousness of, of of the Spaniards because of their, um, uh, you know, they, they, all the, the racist tropes that we're all familiar with of laziness and you know indolence and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so so in that sense, um, uh, you you have this this back and forth of both. Um, uh, transcending difference and and, uh, and also um, uh, reinscribing it. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about that in in so much in, in that way as you know as Hispanophilia as as kind of um as creating a a whitening process, if you will. Like you said for the the Catholics that I that identified as white, you know, that could mm-hmm. identify as white, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's 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 a very interesting uh, a point, and it's not something I'd, I'd really thought about much more. But as you were just talking, it it's, it seems like right that it became this this emergent form of this bridge between Southern California uh, Anglo Protestants and white Catholics created this mm-hmm. type of a whitening agent, um, if you will. Yeah, and, and what's interesting too is that that a lot of the uh, older elite families, the Californios, mm-hmm. and, uh, oh, yes. also very much uh, uh, played a part in this. Um, right. And, and there's been some, some um, great work written on, on the Californios, but um, uh, they participate in the celebration as well because they become part of this great narrative of they were the ones who were had these huge ranches and really knew how to live. Um, but uh, ultimately, somehow the Mexicans get blamed for the decline of uh, the ruling uh, elites uh, um, in California, even though really it's the American conquest that puts them right. out of business, um, and uh, and is oppressive, right? Um, but it's but it's, a, but it's but it's being allowed to be white um, by being a Californio as opposed to a Mexican that right. I think is crucial there. When you mentioned in the the this um, third chapter a number of examples that that you know push this mission revival. Uh, kind of movement and preservationist movement. You know, you talk about uh, Charles Fletcher Loomis, uh, the Landmarks Club, the building of the El Camino Real. Uh, uh, Was it um, is it Morris's uh, uh, Riverside Mission Inn, uh, or is it Norris? What's his name? I forget his name. Uh, Miller. Miller. There you go. Sorry, I busted both of those names. Miller. That's right. Frank Miller. And so you talk about some of these things which have been discussed in, in some other literatures through a different lens, though. But something that I read, and I, I don't know if I missed this somewhere else, but I thought was just fascinating, was the transformation of Santa Barbara. 
You know, I had mm-hmm. just always assumed, even though, I mean, I've read a lot of California history, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah. and, and maybe in my very quick readings of some things, I missed this fact, but uh, that blew me away. I didn't realize that, mm-hmm. that uh, Santa Barbara at once was this very kind of New England looking yeah. town, had this very New Englandish landscape, and then yeah. uh, voila, you know, uh, not so much voila, but now it's yeah. it's it's like the pinnacle, right? Of yeah, yeah. This Spanish, uh, both the mission revivalism and Spanish revivalism that California went through, right? Yeah, and 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 also in terms of class, you know, you, you think of Montecito and and oh, yeah. Donglades like that, right? You know, mm-hmm. that are uh, yeah, no, but uh, but but Santa Barbara became the strange place where you'll find uh, that a lot of um, uh, New England, principally uh, families that had some sort of scandal, would send their scandalized family member to Santa Barbara. <laughs> it was a way of putting people out of out of uh, the way of uh, you know uh, the social life of New England. Um, right. and, you know, this could be you know uh, a pregnancy out of wedlock or right, right. you know eccentric you know people or whatever. Uh, but you end up at this town, and uh, uh, yeah, I was I was really surprised too to find that um, Helen Hunt Jackson was completely uninterested in Santa Barbara because it was so stuffy and New England looking. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, and 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 another piece that um, this New England town had was it had a Chinatown too, and uh, there are letters. Um, at the Huntington uh, that you can find uh, that describe the um, uh, destruction of the Chinatown as part of the recreation of uh, Santa Barbara as a Spanish place, uh, this elite um, um, place of uh, luxury and affluence. uh, it's just, it's, yeah, I just, it's, it, it, Santa Barbara is amazing in that it was able to do it so quickly. Right. Uh, well, the earthquake, and, as you point out, so helped thoroughly. out, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, yeah. The earthquake leveled the town, that kind of helped things out. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's also interesting to see how people in Santa Barbara who are doing this uh, recreation are in conversation with um, developers in Florida, too. Who wow, are doing really? The same thing at the same time. Yeah, yeah and, and, um, Oh gosh, I'm uh, forgetting the name. Um, I want to say Gables. Um, uh, anyway, affluent communities in, um, in in Florida that are emerging at the same time that are playing with the same sorts of things. Okay, so what kinds of lamps should we make it mandatory right. to have on your house so that you have a uniform style that right. speaks to this imagined? Yeah, no, that was the point you make, right? This was in the city code. They actually coded yeah. like how how this rebuilding yeah. process was going to look and it had to yeah. uh, fit the, the Spanish revival look and feel that they yeah. wanted in the town, right? Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, no, it's a wholesale thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's really uh, it's really amazing and it's, it, just, it just goes to show you how uh, things that we take for granted actually uh, uh, have um, strange and intricate histories. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. We've started, we've, we've been mentioning it throughout, but... Um, uh, of course, there's there's an underside to all of Southern California's Hispanophilia, uh, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps no one articulated this better than I think than than Carrie McWilliams in the right. middle of the 20th century, right? You mm-hmm. you mentioned his 1946 expose, Southern California and Island on the Land, which mm-hmm. when I read it in college, that blew my mind. It completely right. shifted my historical Absolutely. interest and focus. Right? It's where I became yeah. a California historian and all that. So. Yep. Uh, thank you, uh, Carrie McWilliams. Uh, but yes. in the, so in the book, uh, he takes direct aim at this at what he labels the Spanish fantasy past uh, that mm-hmm. was created by LA boosters, SoCal boosters, mm-hmm. uh, and its attendant whitewashing of Southern mm-hmm. California's indigenous and Mexican past. So I want to return back to this um, the countercultural movement that you, you bring up in the the late sixties mm-hmm. um, with. Uh, you know, muralism and then rise of um, Chicano identity and politics uh, mm-hmm. as this, um, if you want to call it countercultural, even, you know, reform at the ground roots level, if you will, um, mm-hmm. visually. In So how Mexican-Americans began to uh, remake both place and identity then in Southern California after experiencing the right racism and discrimination that had been both built into the environment you know structurally and physically mm-hmm. uh but then mm-hmm. also culturally uh and then how this is also the, at the same time they're trying to make sense of this process of their own heritage of uh what is it, of, mm-hmm. of migration right and and um and being binational so um 
I think this is where I want to get back to the muralism. So can you talk about the, the Chicano uh, murals that uh, started popping up in the 60s and the 70s? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you made this great point that you, you kind of make this as a – you draw a comparison um, or a parallel between this and you mentioned earlier and, you know, the Anglo-Protestant mission and Spanish revivalism in Southern California, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. can you talk about that a bit more? I thought it was just a great point, a great chapter that, that made that connection. Thank you. Yeah, no, uh, well, first off, yes, absolutely. We all stand on the shoulders of Terry McWilliams uh, when we write about uh, uh, yeah, the Spanish Arcadia or the Spanish fantasy past or right. any of these sorts of things. Um, so in that sense, I mean, thanks, thanks to Terry McWilliams, um, I mean, that was literally, I had the same moment you did where my head sort of exploded in California <laughs> reading it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I think where I, I think this is in, in no way a critique of, of Terry McWilliams' work. I mean, it was crucial for its time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think that where what's um, uh, different about McWilliams um, and and, and uh, Chicanos and Chicanos that came after him was that McWilliams thought that by writing this expose, mm-hmm. we could lift the veil of the fantasy past. That if right. people just knew uh, that the missions were, you know, as, I mean, I think he compares them basically to Nazi death camps and these kinds <laughs> mm-hmm. of things. Right. Um, uh, that if people just understood that, that, that we could do away with this fantasy past and people could really have a true sense of history. Right. And instead, what we see is uh, a retooling of history. And I think for me, it was a moment in which I came to really understand the constructedness of history, which is, you know, crucial to us as um, historians. Um, right. Uh, especially public historians. Um, uh, and uh, so, uh, well, McWilliams, uh, I think, was in some ways uh, optimistic. Um, what he hoped for didn't turn out at all. And in fact, uh, we have uh, the rise of this mural movement, uh, you know, with, you know, these, uh, I guess, when it's uh, the crown jewels would be places like Chicano uh, Park and, and uh, you know, I mean, I, in San Diego, that. right? I hate that. Exactly, in San Diego. Uh, but, I mean, anywhere you go, you know, right. you're going to find murals um, that really uh, transform place and, and contest and undermine uh, the way that uh, the, the story has been told, the very story that he was critiquing. Um, but I think ultimately what that uh, showed me was that these muralists, though critiquing Anglo- American dominance and claiming a legitimacy for a people that were de- denied that legitimacy by as a result of nativism as racism, um, they were participating in the same language mm-hmm. of conquest and reconquest right. by by using um, um, the indigenous tropes uh, that came to them from um, um, Mexican nationals. I mean, that's not to say uh, uh, that uh, people uh, that Chicanos and Chicanas uh, that we don't have. Uh, indigenous blood, but right. it, mm-hmm. it becomes problematic to uh, romanticize, uh, right. say, the Aztec past when your ancestors may have been Taramaras and you didn't know. So it's important to, to examine and uh, critically reflect upon something, uh, a movement uh, that is um, also I mean, very legitimately making a, a counterculture and creating a culture uh, that um, is uh, deeply uh, uh, embedded within the context of the way that uh, Anglo, uh, uh, principally Anglo-Protestants, but um, that, that Anglos uh, uh, created a region and created a place and created a country. Um, so, uh, so I see the murals as, as really being um, uh, part of the same picture. Right. Um, that they can't be they can't be taken apart. Um mm-hmm. and maybe this goes to my own desire to as I said, uh, there's a certain desire for wholeness when you are uh straddling uh two different cultures and trying to understand, okay, so how does my American half or my US half uh uh fit with my Mexican half? Right. And uh uh so I think that was that was ultimately where I was hoping to end up uh with this book and I think that's why I, I end with this uh quote from, from Paz, uh talking about how uh, we all need to understand a whole range of histories in order to understand ourselves. Um, we can't just uh, stop with uh, studying 
Chicana, Chicana history, we have to understand Mexican history, we have to understand the history of the United States and colonial history and the history of Spain and the history of North Africa. And <laughs> it doesn't right. stop, yeah, um, in order to uh, become as whole as we can. No, that's a great point, and it's, uh, I think it's, it's very true. And um, again, I, I just appreciate it. I don't think I had, I had read that somewhere else before, just someone drawing that the connection um, through actual, you know, uh, the use of language and, you know, symbolism and icon, uh, you know, iconography, right, uh, that's rooted in uh, religion uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. other cultural ideas, you know, between both, you know, the, the oppression that ethnic Mexicans suffered here in, in the United States, uh, but then also the way that they, the movement that was created to, to, to claim self-determination and, and to sort of, if you will, you know, right wrongs, also mm-hmm. in of itself, right, encompasses that mm-hmm. same uh, or similar processes of, you know, remaking history that, you know, uh, whitewashes or, you know, erases, you know, the uncomfortable or messy parts of history that don't fit your project, right, um, or mm-hmm. the, in political aims. So, and I, I think that is a very important point. It's it's something that uh, I definitely, it's one of the things that I, I love most about teaching history. It's what we try to do, right, as you try, yeah. as you show. Yeah. You try to show history from all these different angles, right, because it's, it's not so easy. It's not so clear. Right? There aren't just these two black and white perspectives, Um there, there's really again all these intertwining um, histories, and and that some of them reuse. Uh, a lot of times, these certain concepts or tropes are, are reused for different purposes mm-hmm. over time. So, yeah. it's uh, yeah. just a great point, uh, you know, that uh, thread that's carried throughout the book. Um, so, I, I appreciate you taking the time with us to discuss it. Thank you. I, I also wanted to. Uh, we're running out of time here, but I definitely mm-hmm. want. I'm very interested in hearing what it is that you're working on now, and you know. Mm-hmm. Book wasn't published too long ago, just last year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I kind of know the, the nature of uh, yes. you know the academic uh, is it you know, this <laughs> track and push. And so, what is it you're working uh, on now? <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm working on two things uh, in terms of and in terms of my uh, academic work. One is I'm working on a series of essays again dealing with uh, the historiography of the Southwest. Right now, I'm working on an essay on Willa Cather. And uh, the role that uh, death comes for the Archbishop came, uh, had in, in uh, occluding um, the history of Santa Fe and uh, 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 critiquing her um, uh, portrayal of Mexican Catholicism mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the French Catholicism of uh, of Bishop. Um, well, in her book, it's Bishop Latour, a fictionalized biography of, of Bishop Lamy. Uh, where you have uh, 19th century critiques of Catholics being laid on Mexican Catholics. That is to say, Mexican priests are uh, hypersexual and they have illegitimate children and all these kinds of things. And Bishop uh, Latour in the book uh, is coming to sort of clean things up. Uh, and this book is embraced uh, wholeheartedly by uh, white American Catholics. Um, and it's seen as being... You know, the most Catholic book of the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, not written by a Catholic, uh, but still it, it, it's, it's being able to have this foil of the Mexican other, the Mexican that, uh, is, that, that takes on all of the negative things that were um, attributed to Catholicism um, and dividing up Catholics, good Catholics and bad Catholics. The good Catholics can be American, the bad Catholics, well. Maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one thing. Another thing that I've been working on, um, uh, and I've just been dabbling, and I haven't um, um, gotten as far as I want to on this, but I will, uh, is uh, thinking about uh, uh, ritual and violence in um, uh, narco violence, especially in Torreon, um, where I have uh, a great deal of family and. Uh, where the city has been completely transformed by uh, uh, violence and understanding. Mm. Um, how, why does uh, the violence take the form it does and, uh, and uh, uh, getting a better sense of, 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 of these sort of, uh, I guess these are uh, secular rituals of, of violence, um, trying to understand through the lens of, of religious studies. So not necessarily saying that they're religious, but, uh, but trying to understand how these things get uh, routinized. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then what really keeps me busy is we've just started a new center on campus. Um, uh, it's called the Anderson Freeman Resource Center after uh, first um, 
woman and uh, man of color at Middlebury in the 19th century. Hmm. Um, and it's a student resource center for underrepresented students, first-gen students to come and really lay claim to this uh, very pristine uh, and very elite um, small liberal arts college in a very white state. Right. <laughs> so it can be a, a very difficult transition. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's been uh, a, a lot of what I've been doing. And uh, as we were um, talking about earlier, uh, it's sort of a form of trying to give back and trying to support the students that uh, otherwise might not uh, uh, get to feel like this is home and right. ownership of the place uh, in a way that uh, one would hope. Well, and it's great that uh, also, I mean, you've, you exp- we've obviously discussed, you kind of experienced that yourself. So I think you're really, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, that giving back, you're able to really relate to some of that, um, you know, the disorienting process that it can be to, you know, go away to college, particularly if you're, uh, you know, first generation or from, you know, a, a socioeconomic or cultural, ethnocultural mm-hmm. background that mm-hmm. just hasn't mm-hmm. necessarily provided with the, the social capital, if you will, uh, right. right, to know exactly how to exceed at very, yeah. you know, prestigious and, and competitive universities or colleges, right? So, right, right, yeah. That sounds great. That's wonderful. Well, yeah. thank you for sharing those projects with us. And and again, I very much appreciate you coming on a New Books and Latino Studies and and just wish you best of luck in, in those other projects. And hopefully maybe we'll get you back sometime to talk about thank those you. once they're done. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to New Books and Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with Roberto Ramon Lint Sagarena, author of Atlan and Arcadia, Religion, Ethnicity, and the Creation of Place, published by New York University Press in 2014. If you'd like to contact us, you may send us an email at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also watch for our weekly updates on Facebook. And we encourage you, of course, to get a copy of Roberto's book, and you may do that by following our links to Amazon on the page below. Thanks so much.